in um, a series at the moment. We're looking at the book of Acts, which has been phenomenal. I mean, we've had four weeks so far and they've just been absolutely brilliant. So no pressure for me, but um, OM did just the most beautiful and phenomenal overview. If you want to really get an understanding and a sense of what Acts is and how it sits in the canon scripture, go back to, to week one and just check that out. It's phenomenal. You know, Sam took us through Pentecost, that beautiful moment where uh, the Spirit of God spills out on people um, in a way that just changes the world forever. Uh, Ralph talked to us about what, what biblical community looks like and what that can look like for us. And then Sam again, don't you love his face? Um, he, uh, we kind of opened up that whole thing of signs and wonders. And it's so important, I think for me, coming off the back of last week, it's not that oh, we've done that because we talked about it and then we prayed a little bit. It's like, this is our rhythm. This is our day-to-day that we get to be a supernatural people who are moving in that space. Um, As we're going through Acts, I think there can be a little bit of scepticism around uh, the idea of trying to take what was happening for them there back in that time and in a sense trying to reimagine it or like superimpose it onto us and our church and, uh, you know, our culture at time, and there can be a bit of scepticism about that process. But do you know what? I think sack it. I, I don't know if you like me, but if you, you know, as you're hearing the stories and and reading about this burgeoning community of people who uh, didn't even have a grid or like a language for what was happening. You know, the epistles hadn't been written yet; they hadn't kind of gridded it out in any way. Um, and they're just responding to Jesus, saying yes to Him, and actually being part of like the greatest, most influential movement the world has ever seen. How incredible! And um, And you know what? There is something for us. Because although we're reading about the the church doing their thing, actually, this is Jesus. This is all Him. It's all about Him. It's all for Him. And we get to be part of this, um, this movement where you've got the acts of Jesus being made real by the power of the Holy Spirit through the hands of the church. What a privilege. Isn't that incredible? Um, having said all that, Ananias and Sapphira, what a weird story. I mean, it's like bizarre, isn't it? It's such an odd moment uh, to kind of stumble into after all the glory of what's preceded it. And um, it's a very simple story about a man and a woman who sold some land. They kept some of the money for themselves. They gave some of the money to the church. They kind of covered it up, but then got caught out. So they dropped down dead and freaked everybody out. So that's the story. So we're going to read it from um, Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. It says this. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he also, sorry, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. It's going to be a bit of a shock, isn't it? Um, it's been it. Uh, I've lost my place, sorry. Uh, not knowing what happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Man, if I was, if I was Luke writing to Theophilus, because he, he's basically making a case for Christ. He's like, hey, we want to... I want, to, uh, make a, I want to tell you about all these things, make an ordered account so that you can have confidence in the things that you're being taught. Now, if I was trying to do that, I'd have left this out. I'll be honest. It's like, this is such a weird moment. I absolutely would have left this out. I've been reading and listening and trying to get a sense of how have people like interpreted this story? How have people managed it? And overwhelmingly, there's this sense of like, Ananias and Sapphira sinned. They lied. They covered up this kind of taking of the money. And um, as a result, God punishment, punished them. And um, there's a sense in which what's being suggested is that the glory of God in that time was so like rarefied and powerful, like in a greater measure that God and sin couldn't possibly coexist in the church. And so they drop down dead. So it's a bit bizarre. And it's like this kind of cautionary tale, kids, you know, don't, don't lie or God's going to get you. And I'm like, this, this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. And I think sometimes we can read stories in the Bible and go, oh yeah, yeah, they, they dropped down dead. Yeah, cool. But it's, it, this, if this, it, people would have known, these were people that people would have known. These were real people in a real community. Imagine if, you know, you've got Mark there doing the cameras. Imagine if it was like some secret sin has been festering within and like, poof, it drops to the ground. It'd be shocking. And it's very sad because I like Mark. He's got a good face and very red knees. Um, been out in the sun. <laughs> um, so this raises questions for me. This raises some big questions. First question I want to look at really quickly is, did God actually kill Ananias and Sapphira, sorry, mate, for what they'd done? Um, now, the easy answer to this question is, I don't know. I mean, I know that's deep and theological, um, but I don't have a scoop. Who, who actually knows? Because it doesn't actually say in the Bible, we've got to go with the text, right? It doesn't actually say that God killed them. It just says that they fell down and died. Now, I know the timing is uncanny, isn't it? I mean, it, I would have been absolutely freaked out. Um, but for a society that's got the kind of worldview that says, you know, if something happens, God's behind it. So if something good happens, God is blessing you. If something bad happens, then you've obviously done something bad and he is punishing you. Now, that was the worldview, but even Jesus himself, when he heals the lad that's been blind from birth, and they're asking the questions, okay, was it him that sinned? Or was it his parents that sinned, which is why it's blind? And Jesus like, neither, neither. He's, it, he's just blind, but I'm going to heal him. And uh, not only that, I'm going I'm to do it on the Sabbath. You know, sneaky Jesus kind of rocking it in there. I love that. Um, but he, Jesus himself even speaks against that worldview. And if somehow uh, this was like a cause and effect thing, even, even for that time and that period of history, that if sin just could not possibly be in the same space as God, then, oh my goodness, there'd be bodies everywhere. It wouldn't be church, it'd be a morgue. You'd be like, flapping around all over the place. You'd be stumbling over, like, oh, there's another sinner. And it's just, I just don't really buy it, you know? I don't feel like that's what was happening. And I, there's a sense in which there's enough, as much conjecture to lead you to the point of saying, well, God 
punished them and did that as there would be to say that, I don't know, Ananias and Sapphira went out for lunch and had some dodgy falafel um, and, you know, it didn't agree with them and they both dropped down dead. Um, now, before you, you know, colour me a woolly liberal, um, I'm just, all I'm wanting to do is to, to say, what does the word actually say here? And I don't want to make assumptions. I mean, I, if you accuse me of murdering a couple of people, I'd probably take, you know, a little bit of offence about that because that's a big deal. And how much more do I want to be careful about accusing God of murder, essentially? Um, but what if it was that God's glory was actually somehow greater back then? Now, I remember when, you know, my kids were a little bit little, smaller, but um, like, I remember Macy... Um, starting to do a few things for herself, having a bit of independence. And she'd come up and say, hey, Dad, can I have some juice? And I might be, you know, feet up on the sofa watching telly. I'm like, oh, yeah, babe, well, do, do you want to do it yourself? And she's like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. I'm like, score, excellent. Because stay where I am. And she'd go off and come back and she'd have the juice in her hand and she'd take a sip and like, oh, like that, because she's forgotten to dilute the squash with the water. She's just gone, you know, bottle of Robinson's, smack it in, whack it back. And it's like, oh, there's this kind of, because it's, it's smart, doesn't it? And maybe, you know, maybe it was something a bit like that in the, in the, the early church that the presence of God was so concentrated in a sense that it was like, oh, wow, yeah, you sinned. And like, Ananias fire dropped down dead. Yeah, that's a bit, woof, but it's like, oh, his glory is so big. And, and it, you know, maybe it's like, well, thank goodness that, you know, after generations of churchmanship that we have watered down the glory of God enough that now we can kind of sin and get away with it, that we're not going to drop down dead because it's different now. I just don't really buy it. It's a bit like a pseudo-dispensationalism that God only did certain things at one time, but doesn't do it now. In fact, Paul says it's quite the opposite. There's not a dissipating of his glory and the nature of his glory. There's actually an increase, an increase of it. Uh, there's, there's an expansion of it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. So that it's increasing. It's not, it's not pairing off. It's building up and getting more. Um, so what do we actually know from this story? I think we know that this wasn't like a heavy shepherding thing. It wasn't like this kind of awkward thing where the church was like, you've got to give us all your money or you're not a proper Christian. It wasn't that. Because, um, you know, it was... It, Peter said himself, it's, it's, it was your field. You could basically have done what you want with it. You could have kept it. You could have sold it, given all the money, given half the money, none of the money. It's like, it was up to you. The issue was that they covered up what they did. And we'll go into that in a little bit. We also know that sin is bad. Yeah, sin is bad. And from this story, we see like a, a mini version of the bigger picture, which is what is in the darkness will eventually be brought into the light. And in fact, it was brought out through a word of prophecy, which I think is one of the things that probably would have freaked them out as well. I'd have been freaked out by that. Now, we prayed before the, the service this morning and Sancho's going to come up and uh, he's going to share some of the specific words for specific people that we've had about the sins that you've been secretly carrying. And uh, <laughs> hey, you, you know that I'm joking. You know, you get that I'm joking. But I imagine, he, no, he's got, oh, you've got the list. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, I nearly knocked the light over. Um, so we can, you know, you know that I'm joking, but what I imagine is even in that joke, some of you might have clenched a little bit because maybe even something came to mind for you when I made that joke, when, when, when I said that, you know, ah, we've got, we know the secret sins. We know what's going on behind the closed doors, behind the curtain. 
Um, let that be an opportunity. Let that be a signpost to say, oh, do you know what, actually, I've got some stuff to give to Jesus this morning. So if something did come to mind, actually give it a name. Actually call it what it is so that you know what you're speaking to when you say enough. You know, I wonder if we as a church, I'm talking church globally now, if we, if we cherished the idea of love and restoration more than cherished the idea of being right and proved right, maybe God would whisper a little bit more in our ears these secrets for the sake of freedom, for the sake of love. Now, I think we find this story really difficult because it speaks into the heart of our great religious anxiety. Am I enough? Am I really an imposter? Do I belong here? At any moment, could God just choose to take me down for all this stuff that's going on inside? Um, I think a clunky little story like this, it's really important we don't try and make some doctrine out of it. It's really important, actually, that we hold it up against the grand shape and tone of the gospel. You know, we need to hold it up against the gospel. Um, in 1962, theologian Cole Bart was asked to summarise the millions of words that he had published about God. And his response was this, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. We've got to allow the gospel to be the marker for it, to speak into this story rather than let the story speak into the gospel. Now, it doesn't say little ones to him belong because they'll be dead if they get it wrong. <laughs> it doesn't say that. You know, yes, Jesus loves me. I think maybe he does. I don't know. I'm just feeling full of anxiety right now. You know, it, it doesn't say that. And partly because that's really dark for a start. Um, and, but also it's like it speaks to a gospel where we have to earn our own way out of our mess. You know, that Jesus hangs on a redundant cross somewhere and we're left with this constant ache of anxiety. Like, have I done enough? Have I done enough to please him? And we're left in a culture that fundamentally is about the idea that your failure is fatal, period. There's no way out and you're stuck in that. But do you know what? Jesus is enough. Jesus in enough. I love Romans chapter 12, where it says, in view of his mercy, offer yourselves. You know, that every every moment in worship, every step forward into our discipleship, every knee bent down in adoration and devotion to him is a response to his grace, a response to what he's already done because we can't earn this. We just can't, but he has made a way. Now we are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, he does. So let's stay curious. I think when we um, come across stories that we're like, I don't really know what this is about. I feel a bit weird about it. It's a bit clunky. It's really important to ask the question, you know, okay, why was it important enough for somebody to write this down and for it to endure? You know, why? Why was this, why was this included? I said, I probably would have like just kind of skirted over that one. That, that, you know, that moment where our mates dropped down dead because they'd been sinning. Let's just, you know, put that on the down low. Um, but, you know, Luke wanted to include it. Let's look at the context. The context of this story happening 
is in the context of Pentecost. And it's not that Pentecost happened, great, move on. It's like, this is now the nature of the new world order. This is how it is that, that God has chosen to dwell in his people, no longer in a building, but actually in his people. And um, as I said, you know, the epistles hadn't been written. So you play the movie forward a little bit. They've had some time to think about it, work it out. And this is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He's marking the shape of the church. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what they've been waiting for, like for a long time. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 10, 11, you hear the story of how the, the presence of God literally packed its bags. This is how you might packing your bags. And you walked off, packed its bags, went off, uh, went through the east gate out to the Mount of Olives and was never seen again. And so this was the moment they'd been waiting for because the temple was not a concept. It wasn't just an idea. It was the actual geographical place where God had chosen to make his home. You know, whether you're talking about Eden or whether you're talking about then or talking about now, you've got the same idea that, that, that there's this tabernacling, this, this canopy within which we sit that is a place of connection with him, a relationship with him, of covenant with him, of covering and security in that relationship and a commission from him to go, whether you're to, you know, go into the world and subdue it or go, you know, to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth as his witnesses. It's the same motion and it's the same context and it's the same idea that is being lived out and worked out. This is a huge deal with the temple. And if you're surprised about how violently Jesus sticks up for the temple, then maybe you've not understood how very important it is. You know, we hear about Jesus turning over the temple. He drives out the money changers and the merchants. You know, they had occupied the court of the Gentiles. The only place, you know, behind that wall, you know how Ephesians says, you know, that you've broken down every dividing wall, that you've taken two peoples and made for yourself one people. It's like, that's the wall he's talking about in the temple, that this court of the Gentiles that separated them from the, the holy place and the holy of holies um, was broken down. But, but before that, they are stuck behind the wall. And it's, you know, that space where the Gentiles could come and bring their offerings and bring their devotion to Yahweh, they had filled it with a market. And people would kind of come in and travel long distances and they wouldn't be able to carry their, you know, sheep on their back or whatever. So it's like they would, they would bring the money from their district. And so it would be like they'd have to exchange their money so that they could then buy something to make an offering to the Lord. But there was this massive inflated exchange rate. And um, at and it broke the heart of God. You know, I think in Leviticus uh, 5 verse 7, where it talks about how like, you come for that, for that sin offering, for that atonement, come and bring a lamb. But hey, if you can't bring a lamb, bring a couple of turtle doves. If you can't bring that, get a couple of pigeons because we don't know how rubbish they are. Um, but it's like the, the Leviticus, you know, this space was like, of the, why, why Leviticus is so brilliant is because it, it de-escalates the anxiety of like, is this enough? And God makes a way that any person, regardless of their means, could come and find forgiveness, find atonement. Isn't that incredible? And yet this is what they were breaking. So Jesus is like, hey, you've taken this house of prayer 
And I'll pause there because he's quoting a specific thing there. He's quoting Isaiah 56, um, which is this beautiful, like future thinking, expansive idea of what the temple could look like. And he's saying, you know, eunuchs, we're going to hear a little bit, there's a theme that comes and we're going to hear a little bit later about the eunuchs, but it's saying eunuchs will come and uh, there'll, there'll be a monument to you in the house of the Lord. Not only that, you're going to be given a name that is better than, better than kids. You're going to be given a name that is an eternal name that will not be cut off, which I think is pretty funny for Isaiah. I'm going to high five him when I see him for that. Because he's saying that you as eunuchs, there's going to be a name that will not be cut off. Not only that, they've just got it over here. Well done. Just. <laughs> you're feeling good about that. Good. <laughs> oh yeah, because the eunuch, the thing is great. It's not there. Um, and it also talks about foreigners and how foreigners are going to come. That, that those who love the Lord and are devoted to him will bring their offerings. Their offerings will be accepted. And this place, this temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is a radical, inclusive, expansive vision of the temple. And he says, you've taken this house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've abused and misused this beautiful space for your own devices. And as he's saying that, he's actually quoting Jeremiah 7. And the God, they would have known. That's why they took so much offense. They would have known what he was saying. And he's quoting this moment in, in Jeremiah chapter 7. It says this. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with others justly, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you don't follow other gods and uh, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. And it goes on to say, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see, when the presence of God is in a community, there is a social reaction to his presence. That the, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the innocent find justice, find peace, find hope. Even Psalm 144, it paints this, you know, we, we pray a lot, don't we? Oh, come, come down, you know, come Jesus, come down and, you know, come, we pray, like, let, let your, you know, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, come down. And the psalmist couldn't separate the idea of God coming down, rending the heavens and coming down and this social response and this social reaction, sons and daughters being nurtured and flourishing, storehouses being full, the walls not being breached and there's no cries of fear in our streets. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. There's been generations of an empty shell of a temple and we see this story where Jesus re even retraces the steps of that, that presence exodus and he goes from the Mount of Olives down th through right back to the place of, 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 of Jerusalem and the, and the temple and he follows that journey back as he is the embodiment of the temple, brings it and then the God falls, we have this Pentecost, you know what Sam talked about, this moment where literally these little tabernacles with fire above their head, reminiscent of the tabernacle of Moses and the, the temple of, of Solomon. And with this newfound power, they picked up their machetes and went and destroyed the Romans and took back what was rightfully theirs. No, they didn't. That was a joke, um, just in case you're worried. Um, this is what actually happened after they received 
power. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to everyone who had need. Finally, the temple was doing what it was supposed to do. That the light that we hold is so that others can see. Ananias and Sapphira turned this house of prayer into a den of robbers. And it was literally the oldest sin in the book that they would grasp for something and take something that wasn't theirs. So let's lean in a little bit and take a look at sin. Romans 1 verse 23 said, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. This is, a, this is going to be a deep theological truth for you. Sin is the ultimate expression of stupidity. <laughs> because you're trading the image, what it says, you know, they, they said they were wise, but actually they were super foolish. They traded God for an image. They traded something of substance and value and worth for a phantom, for the emperor's clothes. Worship is the opposite. I love this. Worship is the opposite action of sin because it's the active process of recognizing God for who he is and enjoying him. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? That's why we worship. That's why we can't help it because he's so flipping brilliant. You know, what would compel us to do such a stupid thing and make that trade? Well, there's lots of things, aren't there? Um, and if it's cool, I just want to quickly zoom in on just a couple of things. Comparison and avoidance. Um, in Acts 4, so this is literally the, the verses just before we read about Ananias and Sapphira. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyrus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, we've all got a Joseph in our churches, don't we? Every church got a Joseph. What a great guy. Oh, he's such a great guy. What an amazing guy. He's even got a nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Oh, he's so great and so flipping annoying, you know? Um, uh, Shauna Nyquist in her book, um, Presence Over Perfection, talks about how the quickest way to devalue something is to compare it to something else. Because there's always something better, right? And the problem is comparison is the doorway to sin because what it does, it fosters a sense of lack and scarcity. So Ananias and Sapphira was the first sin of the new covenant. So let's compare that sin compare um, with the first recorded sin of the promised land. So in Joshua chapter 7, we read about Achan who stole, you know, they just had the victory of Jericho and he stole the devoted things. These would have been like gold, silver, bronze, different articles. And they would have either been burnt for God or they would have been put in the, the temple's um, treasury. And he stole them, he put them and he hid them in his tent. So he was found out prophetically, you know, Joshua, um, a word from God about the tribe, whittled it down to the clan, to the family, and to the man himself. He was confronted and his family were taken along with all of his cattle and everything that he owned to the Valley of Achor. They were stoned, burned, and rocks were piled on them as a monument, say, don't mess with God. Now, both of these firsts 
speak of this kind of original sin of taking and hiding in such a way uh, that raises the question of both our identity and the identity of God. I read a little article by a guy called Dennis Merritt-Jones, uh, which talked about the difference between taking and receiving. And he's saying that taking uh, is, is definitely like receiving is like this kind of open high, like, ah, oh, you know, we, we receive. And it's the sense of like um, taking, we take and don't, there's not a sense of like what, what would be reciprocal in that. But essentially what he's saying is this, is that taking is built on the shoulders of entitlement, that we justify the taking by like, well, I'm, I'm entitled to it. I should have this, you know, I'm entitled to this. Um, and that that entitlement is born from this idea of scarcity and that this scarcity is born out of the idea of shame, that we're not worthy, we're not worth it. And so out of not feeling worth it, we feel the pain of the scarcity and we, then we build this mechanism of, of justification through entitlement and we take so the comparison led them to grasp and take. You know, this, 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 this picture of Barnabas as being this guy who's like, hey, I'm just going to sell my field and give, give the money. It's cool. And, it, and they ended up trading the glory of God for an image. Maybe they wanted to seem like upstanding members of the community, generous or even kind of leaders in the community, but that's fundamentally what they did. So then the other thing that locks us into that sin is avoidance. We want to avoid the humiliation. Have you ever... I had an experience that was so embarrassing and you're retelling the story afterwards and you're like, oh man, I was just so embarrassed I could have died. Yeah. I remember I was, I was at a party and I was standing in the party and there's loads of people around and I was chanting someone in like, you know, probably talking about the Lord because, you know, that's what we do. And my mate thought it'd be really funny to come by and grab my tracksuit bottoms and, and debag me, pull them down like that. And the problem was he didn't just grab my tracksuit bottoms, he grabbed my pants as well. And so as he pulled them down, I was literally left flapping in fresh air. There was like nothing. And it was like, I was so embarrassed I could have died. <laughs> now you get the idea. It's not that we would rather die, but I think there's this concept that we would rather die than experience the humiliation of being exposed, of being caught out. We give so much weight to what people think. We, and so in order to protect ourselves, we present an image or a mask, almost like a version of what we think will be acceptable. You know, the story of Narcissus, Narcissus rather, is, is not that he loved himself so much because he was so great. It's actually that there was such a deep sense of shame in him that when he caught a vision of this image, this unattainable image, he couldn't pull his gaze away. And so he ended up dying through starving to death because he couldn't move away from this case. This was unattainable. This was unattainable image. We find it so hard to actually look at the reality of our shadow side. And as a result, we rarely confront our own villainy. If we never allow ourselves to be the bad guy of the story, we'll never grow and never change and never mature. We'll find it hard to be genuinely sorry and genuinely repentant. And in order to protect it, we build the mechanisms and the rackets. We end up you know, creating a version of the truth that benefits us and not others. We end up gaslighting, blaming everybody. It's everybody else's fault, not mine. And we build up this armory, uh, so this armory that um, protects the broken mindsets, the broken habits, the broken behaviors, and we keep feeding the sinful nature. I think the deep sadness of this story is that it demonstrates the capacity of the human spirit to avoid freedom because it's already been afforded for us, right? We're standing in the context of this beautiful landscape of covenant that has been built through his blood. But sin that is not dealt with ends up disqualifying us from, we disqualify ourselves really from the experience of the fullness of that covenant. And it hurts, we can still see it. You know, we sing about his goodness, we read about it, we talk, we see it in others, but we, we have this little moment like, well, that's for them, but not for me. Because if people really knew if people really knew. 
so we take what we can. You know, your sin will kill you. It will kill you. <laughs> and it'll either be that it will kill you or you choose to die to it. Either way, you're going to die. It's your choice. How, what's it going to be? You may not drop down to dead or you, know, you may not drop down dead right now, but the sin that you feed today will devour you tomorrow. It's already stealing from you. It's it's stealing that covenant, but it's stealing from you. It's stealing your peace. It's stealing your hope. It's stealing your joy. You know, have you had enough of that yet? It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying your confidence. It's destroying your sense of acceptance and belonging. You know, have you had enough of that? Sin is disinviting you from opportunity. Sin is disinviting you from favour and influence. It's disqualifying you from community, from flourishing and from hope. Have you had enough? And it's not just you. You know, we can be so transfixed by this false image of ourselves that we can barely lift our gaze to recognise that our sin is actually affecting others, that we're isolating the lost from salvation, that we're keeping the poor from provision, that we're keeping the prisoner from freedom and the sick from healing. Are you comfortable with that? Are you okay with that? I know that I'm not. And I know what this looks like because this is what it's like for me. I've well been in a place where I've been so embarrassed about something that I've just wanted to cover it up and hope that no one ever sees that. You know, I've raised up this shield and trying to protect myself and actually all I'm doing is repelling the blessing that God has got for me. There's been moments in my life that should have been pure joy that have been dulled by a sense of undeservedness and I've been left numb and grey. I feel most alive when I'm being honest, when I'm being real and vulnerable, when I'm not posturing myself and trying to present a version of myself to impress other people. My closest friends are actually the people that I've rumbled with and had a falling out and had to work, work through it. <laughs> I'm anxious about the kind of parent that I am. I find it hard to say sorry to my kids because I think it says that I'm not a good dad if I have done something I have to say sorry for. And I, I just the amount of times I have to just get down to their level and be like, man, Macy, Libby, I'm so sorry that I got angry that I shouted. You know, it wasn't you actually, it was just me working out my own flipping shame. Now I feel like that I struggle with being a good husband. I think like every other husband, because you can be a right douchebag. <laughs> can be grumpy and selfish and lazy. I feel hard sometimes to be a good colleague because I'm so nervous about making a mistake that, that I end up covering up and even feel the, the pain that comes from, from that sense of failure and end up blaming others. So the danger can be that we assume that sin is too strong to overcome. But you know what, there's power in confession. 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is power in repentance. There's power when we turn. There's power because there's power in his name. You know, I love that repentance isn't an event, but it's a journey. Because then it's, it means that we get to do that with one another. You know, Hosea talked about in chapter two, the Valley of Achor, you know, this place where Achan was taken and stoned and burned and, and, and left 
Um, that valley, which means, acorn means trouble, affliction, or taboo, that becomes the door of hope. So that's what Hosea says. So as we confront and face the darkness within us, that's the way out. Because we have got a father who loves us. The father who's there and he's like, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. He's passionate about, about us. He's passionate about meeting us. I want the band to come back up. We're going to finish. He's passionate about us. And like the father ran, he's running to us. But you know what? He's not coming back for a bride that is wearing a mask. He's actually coming for a bride that's wearing a veil. A veil, a wedding veil represents purity, modesty, virginity. But that veil is from him, not from us that we might boast. It's his sacrifice. It's his blood that has washed us whiter than snow. And that moment of salvation is the moment where the bridegroom lifts the veil and we say yes to him and we gaze upon his face. We consider his glory and we become like him and we go from one degree of glory to another. So we're going to worship and we're going to pray. And this is for us as individuals. We want to be able to be the kind of people who are like quick to say, come on, when's the time for repentance? It's actually now because why would we string it out any longer? And to allow the love and the goodness of God to fill us and to flood us, to give us a hope and a future and to deal with our sin and to, to call it what it is and to, to get rid of it and to walk in a different way. His love for us is so full. I think that's the reality that when his glory is in the room, it's not that we get wiped away, it's that our sin gets wiped away, that death has no sting. And I want us to be the kind of people that don't feel the need to wear that mask. But I also, do you know what? I feel it's, it's for us as a church. I think we've taken this house and we've made it something that it wasn't meant to be. I remember being at Soul Survivor Church when I was studying in London and um, it was the time when Matt wrote Heart, Heart of Worship. Coming back to the heart of worship, it's all about you, you know? And the music phase, all is stripped away. I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, bring you more than a song for a song itself is not what you've desired. And in that moment, we sacked off the band, we sacked off the, the main room and we went into the cafe, pushed all the tables back, sat in a circle, put a, a guitar, a Bible and a djembe, which dates it, um, in the middle of the room and we just waited. And God did something in that moment because it was about making it about him. I want us to be the kind of church that rediscovers that heart of worship to present ourselves as pure and modest, a safe place that we're known for carrying his presence, that we're known for relinquishing the control and the hold that we have and become open to the wilding of the Holy Spirit in our family, that this would be a house of prayer for all nations. And so we're going to worship and I want us to pause and I want us to bring our confession to him. I'm going to take a moment to call it what it is, to allow Jesus to shine a light on those things, that we wouldn't be stupid enough to trade his glory and his presence for something that is false and empty and hollow that we would be free
because it's for freedom that he has set us free.